0: Marshallville, Georgia, is a very small town in rural Macon County with a population of a little over a 1,000 people. But don't let the size of the town fool you. Incredibly, Marshallville claims two rather prominent people who make their living in the National Football League. One is the all-pro linebacker with the Baltimore Ravens, formerly of the Chicago Bears, by the name of Roquan Smith. If you follow football at all, you know him. The other is my guest today, James Lippert. Currently, James is the director of college scouting for the Houston Texans NFL franchise. Trust me, that is no small job. His primary responsibility is to oversee the evaluation and scouting of college football players who are eligible for the NFL draft. A big time job for a small town guy. In 2008, I wrote an article about James that ended up in a book I wrote. I will quote a few sentences from that article from 15 years ago, and I quote, I have often wondered how many people give up when the reward for hard work is right around the corner. I have a feeling it happens much too often. For the past four years or so, I had my eye on a young man who has continued to work extremely hard would most would have given up a long time ago. I have to tell you, this Georgia Bulldog will be looking for number 30 every time Georgia Tech takes the field this year. And I will be cheering James Lipford on every play. More importantly, I will be cheering him on in life after he graduates next year. Trust me, this strong, tough, and relentless gentleman will accomplish great things before he is done. End of quote. I never claimed to be clairvoyant, but one thing is for certain, I was right that day. I was so right, I can even use my 15-year-old prediction to name this podcast, I Told You So. And just for the record, I'll make one more prediction. At 37 years of age now, he ain't done. In fact, he's just getting started. His story is not even close to being fully written. But even in the first half of his career, we can all learn from it. When you listen to this conversation, I have no doubt you will agree. Viewing life from a hearse, it could
1: be worse. Laugh, think, and
0: cry with the country undertaker. This is Bruce Goddard, and you're listening to the View from a Hearse podcast. I got with me, man, I go a long way back with this guy. He is uh, director of scouting for the Houston Texans. That's the NFL franchise, for those that don't know. I think most of you will. His name is James Lipford. James, I think I first met you. When Luke went to Westfield, you guys were in the eighth grade, and all you hard-headed guys were hanging around at our house, right? I, I, we were told that there's a
1: tall tale that goes with your son coming to Westfield. We were told that this 6'6", 220-pound, you know, going to score 30 points a game basketball player was coming to Westfield from Reynolds. And, uh, and, I, and I love Luke, but he uh, he wasn't quite that. <laughs> he was a lot of things, but he wasn't quite that. That's true. We met the summer, I want to say going into eighth grade, and uh, and man, he's, he's you've you've uh you've got awesome sons, and, and Luke's one of my favorite people on the planet.
0: Yeah, he's a crazy one. I tell you that. Yes, he he's, he's off the charts. So, <laughs> so James, let me tell you. The other night, I was watching the NFL draft. I don't usually do that. I don't know. I was watching it just to see what was going on, and then I watched the Houston Texans, and you guys did some some pretty magical stuff there and you ended up getting the second and third picks in the first round one of them was C.J. Stroud of Ohio State other was Will Anderson and I said wow boy they just upped their team and then I they panned into the room and I saw you hugging and high five, and I thought wow James is right in the middle of all that that has to be a lot of fun what you're doing right
1: yeah, it was a it was a culmination. That whole weekend, you know, you go Thursday, Friday, and into the evening on Saturday. That whole weekend is a culmination of a lot of hard work done by a lot of people, and it it is it is. I'm a small part of it. You know, we've got seven scouts that live on the road full time, and they go to they spend time at Ohio State and Alabama, down to Miami of Ohio, down to Alabama State, and were in between. So it's just really the way I refer to that weekend is the, it's the Super Bowl for the 32 scouting staffs across the league and I mean I'd say 90 90 percent of our job is based around you, you're doing things to get ready for that that last weekend in April because it's such a it's a crucial opportunity to add young players to your team and we just tried to do the best job we can from the first two guys we took to the other seven guys that we drafted they in my eyes, they're all important, kind of, regardless of where they were taken. And then we signed nine guys. We they're they're known as undrafted free agents that were not selected by a team, but they still are part of the team. And so we signed nine guys from all over the country to to make it a, a grand total of eighteen by the end of the day on Saturday that we that we uh, that we're bringing to Houston. So excited about every last one of them. Honestly. Oh, I'm
0: sure. So I was thinking, and the work that has to go into that, and you're being very modest you've got a lot of responsibility with that team and I know you've probably been in all those roles in your career my gosh you've been doing this 16 to 17 years I imagine now almost right how long have you been
1: correct I want to say this is entering year 15 for me this upcoming season so
0: all those roles of people being regional scouts and national scouts and all that you've done all of it but you're in that seat where you've got responsibility for all of it so you're you're doing stuff that I predicted you would do. And if you remember in 2008, I wrote an article about you that ended up in one of my little books that a lot of people have read. And I, I was talking about that there was no telling what James Lipford was going to do in his life. Do you remember that? you remember me writing that?
1: Um, I still have the book. You know, we, my wife, Lacey, and I, we've moved around a couple of times. And, you know, you have those like call it two to three dozen books that I always seem to travel with you at all, at all times. And um, and and you're going to have to help me on this. Um for the gentleman's name on the front of that book, it's a, it's like The Life and Times of what was his name again?
0: Julian Brown.
1: There you go. So so I I you know it's it, it was really it was very cool to me at the time 15 years ago to see that somebody had written something about me. I was humbled and and you know I, I appreciated you giving my parents a shout out in that article cuz they're they're just the best people of all time. So
0: I want to talk about him here too. So the story of Eulen Brown was really about a man that had a muscular disease and re- refused to give up. He always found himself in the ditch and he didn't know what the word quit was. And so you're in that book because you didn't know what the word quit was. And I, I saw you, I had a front row seat watching you as a teenager grow up. You number one. I saw somebody with tremendous people skills. I saw somebody that was very smart. You were a student. You graduated, I'm sure, at the top of your class. If you didn't, you could have. You were an influencer around others. You were a gentleman to others. You were very athletic. You were all-state football player, but you probably were all-state basketball player, baseball player. You came from this little bitty town that nobody's ever heard of called Marshallville, Georgia where we talk about welcome to Marshallville and hurry back is on the same sign that's really true I, I can promise you you're the first person from Marshallville to ever be the director of scouting for NFL franchise
1: <laughs> I, I haven't looked at our at our uh, the history books of Marshallville but I'd say that's probably correct <laughs> I would think it was we arrived when I, I came home and I, and I love Marshallville Marshall's in my DNA for sure but and I I, did, I get back probably once maybe twice a year now but I want to say this was four or five years ago, and Roquan was drafted by, um, by Chicago. And you know, Roquan went to Macon County, but lived in Marshville a lot. And I don't, I don't know Roquan very well at all, but I do know he was kind of back and forth, Marshville to Montezuma. So, so at least we do have. We're one of those small town Georgia, you know, small Georgia towns that have that. Home of so and so first round draft pick to our name now. So we've got Roquan, and then way down the way down the line, there's there's my name somewhere. Yeah, but isn't that amazing?
0: We, we 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 get to claim Roquan, which is way cooler than me. So one of the things I talk about on this podcast, James, is the amazing people that come out of these little towns. That you know, people don't realize it, across this country, little towns have produced some some amazing people. And the fact that he's talking about Roquan Smith, who's a all star middle linebacker in the NFL. And James both came from this little town, Marshallville, Georgia. Isn't that crazy? I and mean, That's absolutely it's amazing. crazy. So I want to go it's back amazing. and talk about when I was, I was, I was talking about what you did, and, and and I watched you. And one of the things that I picked up on really quick, I knew your parents before I knew you. I got to know them much better. You know, when you guys when you and Luke were in school together, and I was at Westfield all the time. But you got some. Uh, half Dunning DNA and half Lipford DNA running through your veins. And that's some pretty strong DNA. And I know that uh, your parents are, are a very important part of whatever success you've had in life. And just talk about that because I think that's important. These, uh, they're not perfect people. They don't claim to be, but I tell you what they did. They were great parents. I can tell you that.
1: But they were they were phenomenal parents. They... They set so many good examples that, honestly, I try to use in my marriage and in my fatherhood. I have three amazing kids. I've got my son Bo is five, my daughter Camel is three, and my other daughter, Press, is six months. And, and you know, Lacey, my wife, Lacey, who comes from La Raja, Louisiana, which is, I mean, it's even... Marshall is still smaller than La Raja, so I have that on her, but she grew up on a little dairy farm in South Louisiana. so. We really come from similar places, but you know, and she'll tell you this: her fi- family dynamic was different than mine. And I realized how blessed I was. I, re- I rarely saw my parents raise their voice at each other. Uh, I saw them, you know, have, have, th- have three older sisters: Caroline, Susan, and Sarah, and just you know the 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 things that you have to do when you're raising raising girls and raising women in the house. And I was, I've always, um, you know, I learned the importance of treating women the right way. And I saw that. And then it was i was it was a unique situation how my dad's workplace it was you know a quarter mile half a mile down the street and so i grow up kind of bebopping in and out of his office i helped him when i was in high school delivered chemicals for him and all sorts of stuff but i got i was i was able to see him interact with a different person you know every 20 minutes old guy young guy white guy black guy whatever the case may be super educated or you know never leaves the country i mean it's he just dealt with a different person constantly all day he still does to this day in marshall and i just saw him handle people negotiate talk about money talk about products talk about all this and it was just really valuable for me and he just always he always treated people correctly fairly he didn't raise his voice he's not real confrontational but you know he's sort of stern and about his business when he has to be. And then my mom just has a heart of gold and you just you just constantly felt love from my mother. And, uh, and I still do, I mean, I mean, we talk just about every day. And so I got, I got, I got people, you know, an exposure to people skills, to hard work, to sort of business. And my mom was extremely successful in her line of work as well. But I just, she, she was a such a loving mother. She was a nurse, Yeah. 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 And she, and I mean, how many times did I see people in mostly in Macon where she worked in medical center, but she ran the Lamaze program there, you know, kind of in the eighties and nineties. And, and so I had so many people that said, oh yeah, you know, your mom delivered my baby. You know, literally, I would say 500 times growing up that happened. And it was, it was just amazing to see like how much joy my mom had with, for, you know, other people helping them out. It's such an important part of their lives. And so my, just, my parents have touched a lot of people there in middle Georgia in their
0: own ways. Oh, there's absolutely no, no doubt about it. What I'm thinking as you're talking and I may be wrong about this. I don't know if I've even said it before, but you know, if you grow up in a big city, you kind of end up relating to whoever's in your circle. When, when you grow up in a town like Marshallville, Georgia, you have to relate to everybody. And just what, Correct. just like you said, it's, it's not that you have to, but you have the opportunity to relate to everybody. So you develop people skills that other people have a deer in headlights looks when they go and all of a sudden they're confronted with somebody that's completely different from them and and they're not sure how to handle that. And and I, I know when I look back on my life, I had the same opportunity, being in the funeral business, dealing with people from all walks of life and building relationships, you saw the value in all of them. And I know you saw that in your parents, right? I, I
1: surely did. And, you know, I'd say another sort of layer of that, which I'll always say was just an unbelievable um, benefit for me. When I was at Georgia Tech, you have 100 plus guys in that locker room and they're literally from all over the country and they're from different backgrounds and they're from different family situations. And some are going to be Calvin Johnson, number number two, overall pick in the draft. I mean, we had a walk-on linebacker come in with me. That I mean, the guy's probably running Dell Microsystems by now. I mean, there's, there's, we we had guys from all over, and you just had to say, "Hey, I'm James Reefer from Marshall." Okay, I'm I'm uh, I'm DJ Jones from Camden County. I'm uh, I'm Calvin Johnson from Sandy Creek. Um, Michael Cox from Redland, Pennsylvania, and you you know that opportunity was incredible to. Meet people, learn what they're about, and then you get to know. Them, and you're going into—I shouldn't say battle, but you're—you know—you're working with them, trying to get ready for games for four or five years. So that sort of five-year window of my life was an unbelievable opportunity to really learn, develop, sharpen people skills, and I still use it to this day.
0: And so, one of the things that we forget, and it's really true, is that we don't know what we're doing now how that can be used later in our life. And that's why it's so important to be living in the now and, and don't really be worried about what's gonna happen five years from now because what you're learning now will take you to where you need to go. I and mean, that's really true, isn't it? No, we you don't you don't you don't
1: know when that when that ticker inside of our chest is gonna stop working. That thing might start work stop working in ten minutes. You better enjoy it while you're doing it. So I mean it's like
0: <laughs> I'm an undertaker. I understand that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean like I just I really try to live in the day, and I try to enjoy my family, and love my wife, and love my kids, and call my sisters, and call my parents, and and I just God, God has blessed me. I mean, good Lord, beyond belief. So I. I truly try not to take anything for granted.
0: Ever, because, you know, it's amazing when you think about it. You didn't have one thing to do with Jimbo and Debbie litford being your parents. know you, did, you, you didn't no choose doubt. them. You didn't say, "I want them." God did that, brother. He he extended his grace to you, didn't he?
1: My dad was all set with his three girls, and don't let him tell you any different. My mom wanted <laughs> the boys. So. He he was he was a he was going to be a girl dad and. uh and she wanted the boy. we It's been a story that my mother has told for years. She goes, every time she'd pray for a boy, she'd eat green M&M's. And so whenever I was growing up, whenever I was eating M&M's, I'd always take the green ones out and give them to her. And that's just always been her thing. So she's,
0: she's fun. It's a good little story you have. Oh, I love it. So let me ask you this. When you were in high school, I just had a podcast recently with Giles Amos, and he came out of the same school. And your path, what you guys did, it was very similar. You had scholarship offers to play football out of high school, mostly, I assume, small schools. But you you chose to go to Georgia Tech. And just, I think people know that, you can't be a dummy and get in Georgia Tech. I'm a, I'm a Georgia bulldog through and through, but I can promise you, you got to be smart to go to Georgia Tech. But you chose to go there and to walk on. When you were in high school, you were playing all sports. And I know you were very good at every one of them. I mean, you were excelled. You're just an athlete. You were born an athlete, I think, and you worked on it. But, but how did you end up choosing football out of all that? How did you pursue football?
1: well i would say well my my genetics eliminated basketball pretty quickly as a chubby six-footer with a with a very short vertical jump so my basketball career ended uh whenever we got knocked out of the playoffs there in high school but i really uh i loved i loved i loved all of them i loved you really just depending on which one i was playing at the moment but i certainly was was nothing more than a high school college player i saw I saw what a college baseball player looked like when I played with Bub every day, and I said, "Well, I'm not maybe half as good as he is." So, <laughs> I don't, he 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 should go play college baseball. And, I'll and I'm not capable, but I was I was back and forth my senior. Year, and I'll be honest, I was I, some days I just wanted to go to you know UGA, Auburn, whatever, and just kind of go have fun, and just live life, and be a college guy. And then you know, part of me looked at the Sewanee's, you know, Division Three school up in Tennessee, or the UT Chattanoogas or the Carlson Southerns, you know, those kind of, call it smaller schools. Thought about maybe playing there, and, you know, there's some there's some big, you know, not, I wasn't a big fish, but there's some, there's a small pond sort of element to those places. And then, you know, Ronnie Jones, my high school coach at Westfield, said, I just think you're selling yourself short. And I always give him credit. I have a, I have a picture of him that I'm looking at right now in the home office after he won his uh, first state championship at Westfield. And I, I really am I don't know how much he knows that, but I'm really forever indebted to him because it always stuck with me. He says, I think you should go play at Georgia Tech if they
0: want you to walk on. When I was talking to Giles Amos the other day, he had high praise for Ronnie Jones as well. God, no, tell doubt. You no doubt. I actually ran into him at lunch the other day. And one of Robins, after Giles Amos thing came out, boy, I can only imagine the people he imp- impacted and what he saw in you. He did. He did. And he,
1: he just had a lot of faith in me. And he goes, you – I think you're a really good player. I think you're a think you're a college player. I think you should go. You should go give it a shot. And he says, if you don't do it, you're going to regret it. And for him to say that, it just it, it came with a lot of conviction. I said, man, I I hate the thought of regret. Just gives me the heebie-jeebies. I, I'm always kind of up to do things and try new things. And so I said, you know what? If I hate it, I'll just I'll go do something else. But I did it, and I redshirted in 2004, and then played four seasons after that. And. It was the best, you know, one of the best decisions I've ever made. I just had, I had such a good time there. I was able to, to get a phenomenal education, met so many good people, played won a lot of games, and it kind of helped spring me into my current career, which is, you know, really what i wanted to do for a long time So. I'll always – Georgia Tech is just has a has a huge place in my heart for sure. Well,
0: one of the things you didn't mention that you walked on, but at the end, uh, before you were done, you earned a full athletic scholarship. When I was writing that article, that was what had just happened, I think. And it was just amazing when I realized what – you know, the difference between a scholarship athlete and one that's not and the ups and downs. I'm sure you had nights. I might really want to keep doing this, And, and but, but you did it. And if you hadn't yep. if you hadn't done it, there's a good chance you wouldn't be sitting in the seat you're in right now. No, no,
1: there's no there's no way.
0: One of your crowning moments, I'll never forget it. And and you know I'm a Georgia guy and I'm I'm gonna pull for Georgia, but I can tell you I've always been one of those people that if Georgia Tech is playing somebody else, I'd pull for them. I'm I'm I know I'm in the minority, but that's just the case. No. <laughs> but but when you guys beat Georgia in Athens, I guess that was your senior year and I saw they had a, right. a close-up of you with the hedges in your mouth that had to be a crowning moment I could not help but I hated we lost but I I loved it I loved it I gotta tell you
1: I'm looking at the actual hedges right now so my mom I thought she was crazy at the time my mom so I don't know ordered it or found it basically like plant or something preservation spray she got the hedges I mean I, I might have I might have had a, a whole bag full of hedges by the time I got home, but she sprayed them all. She's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep these. I'm gonna try to preserve them." And so we put it in a shadow box. I'm literally looking at it right now, and that, I mean these these hedges are 15 years old. And you know that game was a crazy game because it was kind of wet, and nasty. We were down, uh, we were down 28 to 12 at halftime, and we popped Jonathan Dwyer popped a long 60 yard run on I want to say the first play of the third quarter. And we did you a know, two-point conversion, touchdown, two-point conversion. And then the, – so it was 28-28, and we kick off, and I'm on the kickoff team. And I can't remember who was returning it, but he fumbled. And that ball was, like, right under my be- under my my side. And I want to say one of, one of our kickoff guys reached in there and grabbed it. And so we recovered a fumble. Next play, Dwyer, touchdown 35 28. That game was insane. Georgia Tech trying to end some frustration against the Bulldogs between the hedges for the title game. Jags and his leather jacket going. Now, Georgia and Mark Rick, he had never lost to Georgia Tech. Tech eliminated from consideration for the ACC title hunt, but they didn't really care. They just wanted to get this dog monkey off their back. Matthew Stafford, Muhammad Massaqua. Stafford threw for five touchdowns. Dogs were up 28-12 at halftime, seemingly cruising. Now Georgia Tech had scored a tie to 28. The kickoff after that. Richard Samuels gonna put it on the ground. Tech recovers and on if you see the ball comes loose just before the knee strikes down. Tech is all over it. The very next play.
0: Here goes Dwyer, Mayday. Terrific job of blocking right up the middle, but keep an eye on Dwyer. The defender has the angle on him, and right to oh. look at the cut. Lights out. He's gone. Oh my God! Um,
1: and I want to say that was Stafford's last regular season game. I want to say oh, yeah. AJ Green was a young buck. Muhammad Nasdaq. I mean, oh wow! There was a lot of NFL players on that field, and I just I'm glad we got him once.
0: I forgot Stafford was playing in that in that game. He was really
1: good. He was yeah. one of the talented guys that I certainly didn't play a whole lot on defense, but. He was one of the most talented guys I ever saw. Him, Matt Ryan, intro role for Miami. I mean, a lot of these. We, we played some awesome players oh
0: during my gosh. time there. Oh my so when you left Georgia Tech, you graduated from Georgia Tech. You got all kind of options. What are you going to do with your life? I'm sure you thought about a little bit of everything. Just with a Georgia Tech degree, you have a lot of options. But you took a scouting job for, of all places, the New England Patriots. And just talk about how that came about. How did you decide to – to get into scouting for the NFL?
1: I'll give you the story. So this was about October of 08, my the last season there, and I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I think a lot of people, you know, you get there, at the end. okay, I got to enter the real world, what am I going to do? I just wanted to work in football. I just wanted to work in the NFL. I didn't. I didn't know what clean toilets, sell tickets. I, I, I didn't really know what scouts did or how they did it. I mean, I, I would see guys in random NFL logos show up at our practices for every day for five years, but it never really dawned on me like, okay, I know these guys are scouts. Like, what are they doing here? And so you just don't you just don't think about that stuff when you're in college. What my strength coach was Eric Siana, who's the head strength coach of Buffalo Bills. So Coach Cianna says, "Hey, there's a couple of scouts here watching tape. We've got we had a designated room for scouts to watch film. You know, you spend all day there watching film. And he said, go in there and sit down with them. And just tell them you're working NFL, and I have told them who you are and yada yada." So I go in there and there was a gentleman named Todd, Todd Vasbury, who works for the Colts, and Daryl Moody. Daryl works for the University of North Carolina program now. Todd is actually still with the Colts. And I just sat there with those two gentlemen, and I learned about scouting, and I, and I, I gave them intel about my teammates, which, I, which I've come to know is very valuable. If you can get intel from current teammates, it usually goes a long way. So i'm telling them about you know my teammates daryl richard and guys like that and he just i remember todd looked at me and says you you'd be an excellent scout you should you should get into this now and he and i said what he goes no you'd you love it like you, you just you should do this and I, I had never even thought about it i said i mean okay yeah so all right i'll talk about it yeah, i'll think about it and and so i ended up that meeting helped me go to indianapolis for the 09 combine I actually it was a week-long intern for the colts and they were great tom telesco was the personnel director who's the general manager of the la carter's now so tom was there and um and he kind of ran things but todd and john shaw who's the pro scouting director for the colts all these guys are just so good to me they didn't know me from adam but i was there for a week and i ran and got coffee and i measured players and i did everything i could and one thing I did was our, our interview table was next to the Patriots. And so I met Bill O'Brien, who's back there as the offensive coordinator. Dante Skarnecchi is off, who was the uh, offensive line coach that was there in New England for years and years, who was just recently introduced to the Patriots Hall of Fame, or inducted to the Patriots Hall of Fame. And I just met a really good – a lot of people from the Patriots. So I kind of had that tucked away. And then my special teams coach, Charles Kelly, who's the secondary coach of the Colorado Buffaloes now – Charles Kelly had coached at Nichols State with John Robinson, who at the time was the Patriots scouting director, and then John went on to be the GM of the Titans for a number of years. <laughs> so Charles got me in touch with John, and Charles said, hey, this, this kind of overachiever type of guy, plays special things for me. He wants to get into scouting, you got anything for him? And that was kind of all she wrote. I got an interview with the Patriots, and I went up there, and <laughs> it's, it's amazing how life is full circle. The personnel director at the time, was Nick Casario, who is now the GM of the Houston Texans. So Nick is my, it's, it's amazing. And Nick's like, you know, I consider Nick almost family. He's, you know, he's my boss, but he's a, he's the best guy in the world to work for. And I'm very lucky to to come back and work for him. You know,
0: that is amazing. There's a, it really is. What a a story, all those connections. So I know when, when you were there, I also remember seeing you in the room with Bill Belichick and all that. (laughs) You guys, I, I looked it up, uh, and I think while you were there, you had how many years were you there? Nine years. I was there for nine. Yes, sir. Yeah, nine division titles, four AFC championship, two Super Bowls. Right. Yeah, That's we had it close. was. Yeah.
1: We we went to we went to the A. I was I was there for nine, and I say we certainly the players. I was just on the road trying not to screw it up. But we once I was I was a scouting system for two years, and I was an area scout, national scout for seven. And so those seven years I was on the road. I believe we went to the AFC Championship game all seven of those seasons, and so to to be able to just like experience that level of success was just unbelievable. And so, always, uh, you know, it was it was just awesome. And so, you now you're now as you move on from there, or you know, you stay there, or whatever. You just you're chasing that level of success that you had when you first started, and it's a it's a different sort of chase, but man, it's it's fun nonetheless.
0: People have no idea what goes on behind the scenes in scouting. For you right now, what do you got? Really 15 or 16 scouts? Is that
1: We have seven guys on the road that are full-time. Their only job is to scout college players for the draft. And so there's and then there's in-house from a administrative standpoint, and there's there's a pro scouting sort of wing to the personnel department. So the whole scouting department, you know, call it roughly 15 to 16 people. Uh, but my job for the last five years as our college scouting director has really been to just facilitate and manage sort of our college scouting efforts as a whole. And a huge part of that is just constant communication with our road scouts. I mean, you talk about a job that a lot of people think they could probably do and and, and don't know really what goes into it. And I say that sort of bragging on our guys there, because we have seven just phenomenal guys that, that do the job at a high level. And it's, it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of time away from family. It's uh, and you're you're part call it private investigator. You're part talent evaluator. You're part you know BS detector. Mm-hmm. I mean everything in between. You're just you're just trying to figure out players and get the right players in the building for the Houston Texans. And I say you know it's a complete group effort collective but it cannot be done without really really good road scouts you just have to have those guys
0: so you've done that so you you know what it's like to be on the road doing one of those things to get the guy in the building there's got to be a great organization going on to you got people doing different stuff to as a supervisor or director you i'm sure all that's coming up through you so there's a lot of responsibility a lot of organization are are the times you go out you're looking for somebody and then you see somebody else that you recognize and all of a sudden wow who's this guy does that happen or is that
1: that de- that definitely happens and you know what what does happen sometimes is is you may be at a school and um you know they you when you're you're constantly developing relationships with people at the school and you know our job a is it's if you're going to put your name on a player and grade them at a certain level it, it's your level of convictions it's what do you see but you naturally conversations turn into, Hey, who, who's your favorite guy? Who's, who's the guy that you like, who maybe thinks maybe a little overhyped, whatever. And I always like it when there's guys that almost are kind of underappreciated or under the radar within a program. And, and that, you know, though, yeah, he's okay. This player, you know, player X is okay. And the more you watch player X, you're like, man, I don't like this guy. I, I think, I think this program is maybe a little low. Maybe they're just so used to this guy, but I, I, I really like this guy. I'm going to maybe grade this guy a little higher than maybe conventional wisdom would tell you how where to grade him. And so, you know, I wouldn't say this is a – this is probably not a great example of what I just said, but I remember being um, – I was at practice in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I was there, and I was – one of the main players I was watching was a uh, defensive lineman named Trey Flowers, and we we took Trey – in New England the year before we beat Atlanta in that Super Bowl. So I want to say we took him in the 15 draft in the fourth round. I want to say he was picked like 101 or something like that. Well, I remember being with a scout and we all kind of talk amongst each other. And he was like, I say, hey, where you where you got flowers? What do you think of Trey? He's like I got him in the sixth round, you know, he's kind of this and that, sort of negative. And I saw him play Alabama in the rain, and it was Gross weather, and Bama just trying to run the ball and kind of put Arkansas away. And Arkansas, Belamo was there trying to get the program sort of off the ground. And Trey Flowers just kept hammering people. I mean, they could block him; he's so strong, and he just played really tough run defense. He's rushing the passer, and I remember thinking, like, because Trey was not this elite premier athlete from a speed perspective, but what Trey had was really long arms, really strong hands. And he was super, super country tough. I want to say he's Huntsville, Alabama. Dad built houses, a bunch of brothers. He, he was just tough. And I met him at the Senior Bowl. He was like the last guy I interviewed and talked to him for about literally 10 minutes. It was just me and him in this big open lobby. And I told him, I said, Trey, I'm all set with you, man. Normally these interviews go 30, 35 minutes. I said, I'm all set. But I'm, all I need is 10 minutes. I can look in his eyes and think. This dude is about as tough and blue-collar as they come. <laughs> and then, you know, we get Trey sort of has somewhat a red shirt year in 2015, and then in 16, Trey has two and a half sacks in the Super Bowl to help us win, beat Atlanta. And it was not me. I was not the only person. I certainly didn't discover Trey. But there's, it's a story that I tell guys all the time. Trey's a fourth-round pick. Those fourth-round picks or seventh-round picks or undrafted free agents, those guys can end up being – make massive impact. It's not just always about – you know, number two overall picks or first round picks. It's a, a scout will tell you, man. It's it's almost more fun when you get big time impact out of a guy on the fourth, fifth, sixth round.
0: Oh, I can imagine because you had to go to bat for him. I'm sure you put your reputation on the
1: line anytime you you grade any player. But when you grade a guy, and you, I remember giving him a really good grade, and he doesn't. I want to say he ran four eight or something like that. Again, he was six. I want to say a shade over six two, about two sixty five. But I mean Trey just had these arms that when he dangled his arms, it almost his knuckles scrape scraping around. He just had thirty four <laughs> and change inch arms and he was just so strong. And that that was sort of a, a re that when he would put his hands on people in New England, he could jerk you around because he had long he had length and he had strong hands and he was just real tough.
0: It has to be fulfilling. I know you're not taking full credit for that, but I know that you were instrumental. You were a piece of it of of changing somebody's life. That somebody that may not have happened if you didn't have this gut. I, I get this idea that you guys are flooded with data. You got all we the, are, you, yeah, can, you got sure. more data and, and metrics and all this stuff about these people, but there's some gut stuff that you also have to consider and there's the person you're dealing with and just like you said, you're looking at him in his eyes and you know what his family did and it goes beyond just the data, right?
1: It's it's a thousand percent, and there's there has been so much, so many great things that have that have been created in the last five to ten years from a data and analytics standpoint, which we use, and it's really good, and it helps you be very efficient, and it helps you maybe look at things from a different viewpoint. But you know, it, it sounds cliche, but I firmly believe it's not. There there just is no way to replicate personal interaction. Or scouts when they go to a practice and what they observe on that particular day, I try to tell our guys, you know, like just what your eyes tell you at a practice like is extremely important, and it can't be, it can't be, you know, found from a a data or an analytics or a model or anything like that. What you saw that day could be could be something really special. So always have your eyes and ears open. And, and uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Totally. Agree. So just
0: think about. Throw football out of the door. Yeah. Think about life. And there's people listening to this that may not have, quote, the the metrics that they need to take it to the next level in life. But if they've got that fire in the belly and they've got that twinkle in their eye or whatever it is, because I've known some of the smartest people in the world that were idiots because <laughs> because they didn't have the that, that burning desire and didn't have that whatever it is this intangible that, some people don't have. You can be smart. You can be have all the tools, but it doesn't mean that you're gonna put them to practice. That's for sure. In life, I'm not talking about football, but just in life.
1: Uh, I I completely agree. I completely agree. It's just, I mean, really, it's it's what do you want to be? Where do you want to go? What are your goals? And then the next step is, what are you doing? I mean, what is it? The, whatever the saying is, you know, a, a goal without without a plan of attack is just a wish. Whatever you know, whatever. I'm sure I butchered that, but you gotta you gotta identify what you want to do, and then what are you doing to get there? And you know, I'm I'm certainly a work in progress, but I, I you know, I, I have goals, but every day it's like, what am I doing to get there? So
0: think about your life, your career. You have worked your butt off, and and you know that's true. You you worked when other people were sleeping, you were working. You got this desire to do whatever it is you can do better than anybody else, and that's one another reason that you're sitting in a seat. So, I, you know, my point is for people listening: you may not be a five-star athlete, or you may not be a five-star person that can got all the tools to do anything they want in life. But I guarantee you, there are people that are like you just said that are fourth-round picks that can be great
1: no there are but i would say the you know the older i get you know like okay so if someone is whether it's a career change or want to reach out to somebody approach something do something in life i mean i look at things like what's the worst that could happen like somebody's going to tell you no
0: yeah i
1: mean i i say if you want something go get it or how do i get there And, and i just think in in life we only have a short amount of time here you need to be aggressive and don't wait on things to happen. Go make things happen. And, you know, I, as I'm looking at my two kids playing in the hallway right now, like outside my office door, like that's going to be the, the mindset that, I, that hopefully they grow up with. Like what do you want to do and what are you doing to go get it? And whether it's sports or playing the violin or, you know, make, writing code for a computer program, I just – I want them to be urgent and aggressive in their life and, and try to go, you know, be go-getters because – I, I just think that's the only way to go through life. I don't, I don't like sitting around waiting on things to happen or wasting daylight. I don't like to really sleep in. I like to kind of get going in the morning. So
0: You're exactly right. But the problem is there's a lot of people that, that don't know that or at least are not doing it. There's only a few, and, and that's why there's only a few that rise up. I know that's true. Most people live in mediocre lives. They, they're, they're doing what they do to keep from losing. And there are few people sure, that sure, say, sure. what have I got to do to win? And that means sure. you got to put yourself out and be willing to fail to win. you got to be willing to lose to win, or you won't ever no. know what winning is. So I want to go back to football just a minute, James, because I know I can't keep you all day here. What I, This is something that I'm just personally interested in. What, is, what separates a great athlete or a, that's a football player, a great football player from what you call an elite football player is – is anybody that gets drafted in NFL considered elite, or do you do you draft great? Just tell me what that is, and, and in the end, what are you looking for? What what gets you excited about people that you you're scouting?
1: I would I would say the word elite is a very very strong word, and the word elite probably gets thrown around a little too much. You know, when I think elite, you know, I think I think Kobe, LeBron calvin johnson tom brady you know jj White, those like elite well, I, I think of like one percenters in the nfl and those type of guys and I've, and I've been just fortunate enough to be in the presence of call it calvin brady jj for a couple seasons gronkowski for a handful of years but those guys yes you have to have call it top 10 percent talent level but those guys, in their own way, their their passion for football and their passion for getting better, and they never really lose their edge. I mean, I would say LeBron's probably a perfect example. I mean, watch how hard he plays in year 20 as they're trying to beat Denver right now. Like, I mean, they about game one, Denver beating the other night, but they about made a comeback. He's still playing his butt off. hes I remember being in high school watching him debut in Sacramento, game one against the Kings, and now I'm, hit, so I'm sitting here Thirty-seven years old with three kids, and he's older than me. And he's still playing the NBA, so he he has rare DNA. Tom Brady has rare DNA. Gronk, sort of in his own way, has rare DNA. But what specifically the football, their passion level for ball and wanting to get better, and their humility when it comes to working on their craft. You know, I was fortunate to play with Calvin for three seasons, and Calvin would win every time we ran. Calvin would win every sprint. Anytime we would do, you know, hey, we're maxing out on hand cleans or something, Calvin's top five on the team, but use usually Calvin or four other offensive linemen. You know, I just – I saw like, okay, that's what greatness looks like. And I <laughs> certainly don't have – I certainly don't have his athletic ability and I really don't have his level of, you know, passion to be great because he just – he probably, you know, he just was – he is, he is a Hall of Famer. I mean, I was came in the same recruiting class as a Hall of Famer, which is awesome to say. I've actually never said that out loud.
0: But um <laughs> That's amazing.
1: I mean, but I but I saw him work and um uh, and I, I was fortunate enough when I was in New England to see Brady work and I mean even in, in JJ's last season in two thousand twenty Houston, we were not very good. We won four games. But man, JJ practiced really hard every day and and studied the heck out of his opponents. I'd always get out there on a Wednesday practice and Every Wednesday for about two straight months when we just weren't very good, it wasn't a very fun season, I would find J.J. and I'd say, all right, tell me about this week's right tackle that you're going up against. And he would just give me a, you know, <laughs> bullet point after bullet point after bullet point on um, here's here's what I look for. Here's what this guy can't do this week. Here's what he's really good at. And it's like, God, this guy's still studying, still going really hard. And, man, we're not very good right now. And it would just kind of like show me, okay, this is, this is why this guy's a first ballot Hall of Famer.
0: Wow. Uh-huh. You're having a blast. What's the most fulfilling part of your job, James?
1: Oh, that's a great question. That's a great, you know, the most fulfilling part I would say is, oh, there's there's so many good things. I mean, at, at its very core, at its very core and in the most simplest way to look at it is you you are involved in the best sport on the earth. And I personally, am, I'm fortunate enough to work for a great team a great ownership group a great general manager i'm just i'm surrounded by good people and it's a it's a building coming together to try to win the game on sunday and it's not with all due respect to certainly any other industry and i, and I know how bluff they work in football but it's not a call it sales job to where you're hey i'm trying to i'm trying to earn money for the company or i'm trying to you know sell devices for the company or whatever like we're, we're trying to come together from a marketing department to an athletic training staff to a scouting staff to a coaching staff to line up on Sunday with our players and hopefully beat the team on the other sideline and so it's just an exhilarating feeling when you can see young players that you may have had a hand in bringing to the team and they are the reason why you won that game on Sunday and it's just it's just fun to be a part of something like that, and, and again, I just never take it for granted. It can be taken away at any moment, so I just don't take it for granted. But that is the most uh, exhilarating thing to the whole thing is just the, having a job that gives you, you know, an avenue to to compete is is really cool.
0: I used to go to Houston often. The company I worked for, SCI, was in Houston, so I'm in and out all the time. I stayed at a little inn at the ballpark right across the Minute Maid Park, so. I went to a lot of Astros games just yep. because I like baseball. Sometimes I'd get there in the fifth inning and get a ticket for $2 and sit in the cheap seats, but I became Astros fan. I'm a Braves fan first, but I became Astros fan, and I can tell you. You will me both. I'm a Houston Texans fan, uh, knowing that you're there and what you're doing. I, man, I hope you have a great year. Your organization has helped your team with this draft. Uh, you got a new quarterback, uh, Will Anderson. you got a couple of – Great players, that is for sure. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen. But before I let you get off, I know you mentioned Lacey. She's from Louisiana. I guess you were living there when you met her, right? So quick one on that one
1: was or is, I was the Southwest Area Scout for the Patriots, and I was single and I was living in Austin, Texas. And so this was the summer of 2012, and i went to spend the weekend in new orleans with a fellow westfield class of 04 graduate by the name of kyle greer oh, yeah. and i went to go hang with kyle and kyle's girlfriend at the time who is now his wife and mother of his three boys kyle's girlfriend introduced me to lacy basically i i met my wife and i say this is like the louisiana love story i met her on the dance floor in a in, in, uh, Killian, Louisiana, in a, a, a swamp bar called Ten Lizzies, you literally—if you fall off the balcony at Ten Lizzies—you can get ate up by some Louisiana gators. I mean, they're—they're they're right there. And so this thing is in the swamp, and it was just—you know—music playing, and you know.
0: Listen, there's nothing like coon-ass country. I can tell you, uh, <laughs> I, I traveled all Listen. through there. Listen. If you go to any place to eat, everybody gets up and dance, and it's great. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a whole I, different culture, isn't it? I love it. I love it, and I, and I love, I'll always, uh,
1: always have so much love for the state of Georgia, you know, but I also mm-hmm. haven't lived in Georgia since I was 21 years old, and uh, and so that's, we call it 15, 16 years yeah, now. Yeah, about I've half had, your
0: life. I, I've been,
1: yeah, I've been in Louisiana. Uh, I moved, I met Lacey, and I knew I was going to marry her after about two dates, and so we did the distance thing for a year, and then I moved over there, and about just pretty soon after moving over there, we were engaged and bought a house. We moved to Houston. We've since moved back, um, but we, we kind of wanted to raise our kids in small-town Louisiana because I, I truly think the, the state is very special, and I'd say the southern – I don't I haven't spent a whole lot of time in northern Louisiana, but southern Louisiana is just a – to your point, it is a completely unique – Culture, you, you need people love it. People from here don't leave here. People love it. And uh it just is, I like small town America. And so we live actually in a little town called Hammond, which is kind of a, it's a uh, prototypical, whatever you want to call it, small town. And we just love it. So that's what we, this is I had a saying. funeral
0: home in, in New Iberia. And there you I, go. I did a podcast with a guy, Kenny Pellerin. He's one of the funniest guys. And he talks about that culture. I need to send you a link to it. You know, oh, yeah. Lacey, please do. Lacey will love it. Uh, you know, it's a different culture, but some of the most hospitable people I've ever known in my 100%, life. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. They take somebody like me as a complete outsider and you become one of them in a hurry. That is for true.
1: They introduce themselves. They shake your hand and they crack open a beer for you and an all about two seconds. And you're like, well, I guess I'm drinking beer with this guy. So
0: <laughs> they do not hesitate to take you in. They don't. The no, time. they don't. Yeah. They, it's it's for a great, sure. great
1: place out here. So she's, she's a, uh. She's a little Louisiana firecracker, and and, and God bless me with her. And she's a incredible wife. She's an amazing mother. I mean, her patience get gets tested on a daily basis with these three ruck rats we got running around. Oh, uh,
0: my goodness, uh, I've soon, been there. She's
1: awesome. I know. My, my, my parents tell me to. They tell me to soak it up because it ain't gonna be like this forever.
0: Yep. Uh, I want to meet her. She's gorgeous.
1: Thank you so much. I, I agree. I agree with that. I agree with that.
0: So. What advice do you have James for young people? Uh, you've kind of hit on it, but I want to button it up. What have you got advice for young people that might be listening to this, who have dreams of big things and, and they think, you know, I don't know how to get there. What do I do? What, what is your advice to them?
1: I I would say find a way to, in whatever field that you want to work in, find a way to make yourself valuable, and make a call it business owner or human resources director whoever the person is the person may be interviewing with like what am i bringing to the table to provide value to this company so i can get my foot in the door and get a job and then once i get in i need to kick the door in. when i get there you know this this like hey i want to do this i want to i want to be an investment banker Okay, well, like, how? Why? Are, why is this investment banking firm? Why should they want to hire you? And and then answer that question. Answer that question on your own. Provide value. Acquire skills. Whether it's watch YouTube or get on the phone with somebody. And I just think young people have to go out and bust their butts to acquire knowledge and make connections. And the value of good eye contact, good handshakes, uh, handwritten letters, knowing someone's background before you talk to them. You know, if I if I were to go, I'm gonna get a job at this bank, that CEO or that, that human resources person I'm gonna to talk to, I'm gonna know where they went to college, I'm gonna know how many siblings they have, what's their wife's name, what are they, you know, I'm. I, you gotta go in there and go in there and really be aggressive and urgent and get a job. And once you get a job, I mean be the first one in, and the last one out. And I mean, Mark Cuban talks about all the time, the fear of failure. You know, uh, between the the phrase the fear of failure and pressure is a privilege, I kinda I love those both. I mean the pressure is a privilege. That to me like that's such a life thing. Like, okay, I got a lot of pressure. I need to provide for my family or I need to do, I need to do a good job for the Texans. That's a privilege. That's it's a privilege to have people dependent on you. Um, it, it gives you life meaning and it gives you a, a reason to wake up before the sun comes up in the morning. So I love it. Absolutely. So, yeah, I just, I think, I just think young people in general, just, you have to decide that I'm going to be a go-getter and I'm going to live my life in urgency and I'm going to go get what I want. And, but I'm also at the same time, I'm going to be humble about it and I'm going to work hard and no job is too small.
0: Well, one thing that's interesting, I'm talking to a man, folks, that's 37 years old. He has done a lot of stuff in the NFL, and not only that, but in college at Georgia Tech and in high school. He's a man with a lot of experience. He has knocked down doors, and he has been aggressive, so he's talking about something that he's done, but I also know, James, that there's no telling. if I may be in the nursing home 20 years from now, but if I have this conversation with you 20 years, there's no telling what you will be doing, the story you will tell, who knows? But at this point in your life, 37 years old, three kids, beautiful wife, the stage you're in, what do you want people to know about James Lipford? When your kids listen to this, and it'll be out there, when you're my age, what do you want them to know about you at 37 years old?
1: That's a very humbling question to answer. Um, I would say I don't want them to know anything about football. <laughs> uh, football, football does not matter. The Texans don't matter. Georgia Tech doesn't matter. Football is just something I've kind of done, and I've been fortunate enough to be a part of. I want them to know that my my parents are uh, proud of me, and that's always been sort of life goal number one for me. I want I want my dad, I want my dad, and mom to to kind of beam with pride when they talk about me and my family. Uh, that's very important to me, and it's very important to me that my kids love me and get excited when I walk through the door and learn from me and but I want them to treat people the right way. I'm trying to teach my five year old how to shake hands and have good eye contact and speak the right way and have good manners. And my, my legacy is gonna be about did I make my parents proud and did I raise good kids and was I a good husband to my wife. Like football is 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 nothing. So and job titles and all that are, are those are very, very can come and go and don't matter. Money doesn't matter and not Super Bowl rings don't matter. What matters is life and, you know, depending on your beliefs is is what's God going to think of your resume when you get to the pearly gates. That's very important. And I just think legacy needs to be, he treated people well, he was, he was humble and he was appreciative and he had a lot of gratitude towards a lot of people that helped him get to where he maybe, maybe, or maybe doesn't get, again, really doesn't matter. But I think it's life is way more about your personal interactions and, and who you affected and helped, helped on the way rather than maybe what you did.
0: Folks, this is James Lipford. He's a director of scouting for the Houston Texans. I've known him since he was in the eighth grade. James, thank you for so much for doing this. People will learn a little bit about scouting, but they're going to learn a lot about living and life. So thank you so much, my friend.
1: Yes, sir, Mr. Bruce. I had a great time, and uh, now I've got to get, get back on daddy duty. So Yeah, uh, you go do it. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker.